This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Eucanibus Forty Dog, CZUSA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, Uplander Lifestyle, and Dakota 283. On this episode of the show, we are talking pheasant hunting, youth shooting sports, and more with Coach Bob Brotzel. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 156. All right, welcome to it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. I hope you're listening to this on the way to bird camp or your next cover in the truck somewhere, or at least thinking about your next upcoming bird hunt. I'm looking out the window at some snow, which I have a bummer over the past week has brought the primetime grouse hunting conditions to, I shouldn't say halt, but has certainly slowed them down. The snow wants to melt, but the weather's not really cooperating all that well. The ground is far from frozen, but the temps are pretty cool. A lot of cloud, a lot of wind today. I don't know. I'm hoping it melts one more time before winter totally settles in. But either way, I've been out chasing birds quite a bit already in November, and I hope you are doing the same. I know I've been a little sporadic in getting these episodes up and running, so appreciate you all hanging with me. It's a crazy time of year for all of us, I'm sure, but trying to maintain a minimum of three episodes per month, and it looks like things are probably going to slow down a little bit here for me, so at least on the hunting side of things, not so much on the Upland Gun Company slash podcast slash work-related front, but that's all good stuff. So we've got plenty on the way to keep you occupied and hopefully entertained and informed as I know many of you are really just getting underway with the prime times of your season. So 
more to come. And as always, if you got ideas or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to me with those. Love to hear from the listeners and have been hearing from a lot of you really over the course of the hunting season. And it's uh, it's always a very, very enjoyable component of doing this show and all of the stuff that comes with it. I love talking to the listeners and hearing about your hunts and your dogs and your adventures. So very cool. Keep it up. Email me at nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Speaking of listeners, I do want to mention a listener of the show that I've been in contact with for a few years now. He's from Kentucky. His name is Mark Reese. He's an outdoor writer. He writes a weekly column. He's got an email list that he sends it out to folks. I see it every week. And he's a longtime grouse hunter and quail hunter. And he's got English setters. I'm looking at the cover of his book right now. He's out in the woods with his two English setters. And again, just wanted to mention that Mark has a book available I'll put a link and a description in the show notes to this episode. I've had a number of phone conversations with Mark over the years, just kind of chatting about dogs, birds, guns, all that sort of fun stuff. And again, it's like it's an extension of me hosting this podcast is being able to communicate and interact and engage with people that listen to the show. And just want to simply return the favor to Mark for being a listener and sharing his feedback and thoughts with me over the years. Just wanted to make our listeners of the show aware of the book that Mark recently has had published. So again, link and a description in the show notes. I encourage you to check that out. See if it's something you're interested in. Mark would certainly appreciate it. All right. My weekly thank you to all of the Patreon supporters, everybody that has decided to become a Patreon supporter of the show. I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you very much. More and more people signing up every week. And those people are now eligible for the November Patreon-only giveaway, which happens to be a Dog Trip Pathfinder Mini GPS caller. Anybody signed up as a Patreon supporter by the end of the month is eligible for that Dog Trip Pathfinder Mini GPS caller. Different tiers on patreon.com forward slash birdshot gets you a specific number of entries in each monthly giveaway. Next month is a 2022 hunt at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp in Minnesota, and I will be working diligently on putting together giveaways for the 2022 calendar year. So thank you again to everybody that has chosen to become a Patreon supporter. Thank you to all those that tune in and listen to any and every episode of the Bird Trap Podcast, regardless of your Patreon supporter status. I appreciate each and every one of you. And with that said, we're going to move into our interview today. Our guest today, you may recognize the name, Bob Brotzel, is a... Minnesota high school trap shooting coach, and he happens to be the winner of the Garmin Zero S1 trap shooting trainer that we gave away that I mentioned on a whole bunch of episodes prior to we made the change to Bird Trap Podcast, and since then, Bob and his trap shooting teams will be using the Garmin Zero S1 that was donated to the podcast by Garmin, so thanks once again to Garmin for donating that, and I'm now even more excited that the Garmin Zero ended up with Bob. After speaking with him on the interview today, we talked a whole bunch about Bob growing up in South Dakota, being a pheasant hunter, growing up on a farm, how pheasant hunting has stuck with him his entire life. It's still one of his favorite things to do every single fall. We talked quite a bit about that before transitioning into youth shooting sports, some of the work and volunteer effort that Bob does with his shooting teams and his students and athletes, as he refers to them as, I've been wanting to speak 
with someone involved in the youth shooting sports for quite some time. And this just made a ton of sense. And Bob and I got to talking about his pheasant hunting and the coaching that he does and just had to work out really well that the two of us could connect and discuss a number of those things. After my interview with Bob, he did reach out and wanted me to mention that the West End Trap Club, located in Egan, Minnesota, where Bob and his team shoot a lot, I think he's also one of the directors there, they wanted to offer any listener of the Birdshot Podcast, if you are in Minnesota or you happen to be near the West End Trap Club, drop in there, mention the Birdshot Podcast, the interview with Bob Brotzel, and you will be entitled to a free round of either trap or five stand either one it's yours just mention the bird shot podcast so thank you to bob and the west end trap club for that i want to thank bob personally and the west end trap club for all of the effort that goes into facilitating and giving student athletes the resources time and availability in allowing them to participate in shooting sports the way that they are i just think it's very very cool I think it probably goes without saying that none of it would be possible without volunteers, people like Bob, gun clubs like the Western Trap Club. It's a collective effort, and the end result, I think, speak for themselves. Bob shares some stories and tidbits about some of his student athletes on the show today that I think you will absolutely appreciate. So with all that said, let's jump into our interview today and welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast, Bob Brosel. pretty good on your first name pronunciation. I think I got that figured out, but I wanted to make sure I had the Brotzel right. I, I said that on the show a couple of times when I announced you as the winner and I was had my fingers crossed that I got it right. <laughs> you did. All right. Good deal. Well, Bob, welcome to the Birdshot Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today all the way from my home state, Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes and soon to be 10,000 frozen ones, I think, Bob. Yes. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing doing very well and excited to have you on the show today to talk about something that has grown in popularity is at least to my knowledge I've sort of been following from afar. My kids aren't old enough to be doing this, but I'm I'm kind of excited about it thinking about the opportunity that my two sons may have if they're so inclined to uh to join up the Minnesota High School Trap Shooting League, and I want to talk all about that, but first, I want to get a little background on you, Bob. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of, we know where you're from, but what keeps you busy in the world of shooting and hunting, and how's your fall been going? Okay, I started um, actually shooting when I was on the farm in South Dakota, uh, not too far from Aberdeen, and with a 410, I'd go out on the farm and which was owned by my father who was in the Navy still, but his, his father was farming it. So I went on the farm for eight years and learned how to farm. And one of the part that I enjoyed the most was taking my 410 out to go get the cows to milk and come back with a couple pheasants during the pheasant season. Nice. And, and or waterfall during that time period. And then eventually when I got older, Went to larger gauge shotguns, 12 gauge, and, but that's how I became uh, interested in in hunting. Was raised on a farm, 
out in South Dakota. Yeah, very interesting. So was your father a hunter or was it was it very much just a hey there's a shotgun leaning up against the door you grab it on your way out there or was it was there organized hunting or was it more of a casual kind of opportunistic thing it was both we'd have relatives come over and friends from my of my dad's from the navy would come and we'd have organized hunts on the farm and surrounding area and my i remember before i even was just a little guy uh in the back seat with my uncle and my dad and going out pheasant hunting, just watching them. And yeah, they got the interest then and kind of in the blood, I guess with the, with the family. And yeah, well you got an early start and growing up on a farm, I think would help. I think, you know, we've definitely heard many stories like that and you read stories like that. And I've interviewed people on the show that, you know, literally had the basically getting off the bus and heading home and walking out the back door and, bird hunting i don't think uh not nearly as many people have that opportunity today some still do i'm lucky enough to be able to have a a short enough drive where i can i can get out and hunt on a weekday or an afternoon or whatever but it's uh it's not quite like it used to be in that regard but i would consider you one of the lucky ones it sounds like you enjoyed it and definitely got an early early start into hunting were there dogs running around the farm bob we did, but they weren't really hunters um, like you have nowadays where you have trained dogs. Mm-hmm. I have uh, a yellow lab that has been trained through Dawkins and Northfield. Uh, I've had other dogs trained there, and they do an excellent job preparing them for the type of hunting I do, uh, which would be the waterfall or small game. Yeah. You recall chasing pheasants on the farm? Were there other... Do you recall chasing other birds? Were there Hungarian partridge, sharp tails, prairie chickens, anything like that around the farm? Oh yeah, we had we had partridge and we had sharp t- sharp tails. Always always run into them in the cubbies, especially Hungarian partridge uh, on the farm. A little bit further north of the farm, we had sharp tails, um, but you find more of the grouse uh, on the west side of the Missouri River than you do on the east side. Yeah. And and that farm, how long did it stay in the family? I know you've got a place out there now, but I don't believe it's the same one. Is that correct? Correct. The farm is still owned by my younger brother, oh, okay. whose son lives on it now. He farms it out, though, uh, rents it out to other farmers now, doesn't farm it himself. But his son still lives on the homestead. Okay. And then at some point, you made your way to Minnesota. Was that uh, career, life stuff moving you around? Yes, my dad was in the Navy, so we did a lot of traveling. Uh, most of my brothers and sisters, and I'm the oldest, were born on the East Coast of Naval Air Stations, like myself. Uh, I was born in Patuxent River, Maryland, Naval Air Station. Mm. And when I was about nine, nine and a half, I went to the farm and started farming with my grandfather. And and uh, there's still a couple of younger brothers and sisters still on the farm then, of my dad. So I grew up with my aunt and uncle and my grandfather out in the farm and my younger brother, also Leo, he was on the, on the farm with me. And so we learned how to farm. And um, later on, when my dad was stationed in Minneapolis t- towards the end of his career as a chief medical corpsman, he had all of us uh, back together as a family. So I finished school in, in Bloomington, Minnesota. Okay. 
kind of through that moving around and stuff, did the hunting stick with you the whole time? Were you always making trips back to the farm or did you, oh, did yeah. you, yeah. you were during, during the hunting season? That was a, once it was done, that's what you look forward to the next year. Okay. So I uh, became involved in law enforcement when I was in college and then uh, started my first uh, job in 1973 as a law enforcement officer. And in that area, they had uh, they had pheasants, so I hunted when I could and continued hunting to this day. Yep. Is that your primary pursuit during the fall? You're chasing pheasants, whether it's in Minnesota or South Dakota? Usually it's South Dakota. Yeah. Um, kind of spoiled back in the late 50s and 60s. Uh, when one bird got up, it seemed like the whole field got up. Mm. Yeah, And you can... Imagine what it looked like back then when you see blackbirds today in, in big flocks. Well, that's how the pheasants were back when they had soil bank. Really? Uh, and they had the habitat for them. It was, you know, nothing that you see nowadays. And habitat makes a big difference on the population. Of course, everybody knows that. From your perspective, what are some of the things that you've seen change over the years whether it's farming or agricultural practices or just the habitat quality in general that have kind of influenced, you know, where you're not maybe seeing the crazy numbers of pheasants anymore. But I mean, I know there's a lot of pheasants in South Dakota, but it sounds like it used to be more what you're getting at. Correct. Well, what, what really changed the, the population of pheasants in South Dakota is when they took out soil bank and prices went up for the grain and the corn and that. And mm. farmers broke up pasture ground and made them into, you know, cornfields or wheat fields. And that took a lot of habitat away from, from the birds. And they were farming fence line to fence line. Uh, in recent years, what's happened, and even lowered the population more, is the corn prices went up a few years ago. And land that was in CRP and mm-hmm. then was plowed up and all that habitat disappeared and it was quite, it was a large amount. Yep. And so these birds had very little places to nest and then cutting down the population. Plus when you do that, it doesn't give the birds very many opportunities to find a nice spot to protect their nests. So the predators can find them more easily too. So with that predators knock down the population also. Right. Yeah. If you you lose habitat, you lose high quality habitat. The birds are going to be, they're going to be experiencing pressure from multiple sources. Predation being one of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm familiar enough with you know some of my conversations with the folks at Pheasants Forever and to understand kind of the relationship that you know nowadays, especially how CRP and the amount of acres and that can be enrolled in CRP can influence that and realizing that, you know, we've got corn and grains and other products that fluctuate with market pricing and those demands are going to ultimately affect the habitat that's that's on the ground one way or another. You said you you said soil bank. I'm just kind of curious like what what exactly is that? Soil bank was when the government paid the farmers not to break up the ground, which then helped uh, the, the birds habitat nesting and okay so not unlike crp today it's a, it's right. a subsidization to set land aside 
Right. Just called differently. They changed the name. Gotcha. And I'm sure their specs were different from soil bank to CRP. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's it. You know, again, maybe something to point out that like, I think we, we know, you know, pheasants, they eat corn and, and they eat a lot of that stuff, but without that, you know, native grasses and, and that nesting and protective cover, you know, they can't, they can't survive on all the corn in the world. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. So you've been out hunting so far this fall. Talk to me a little bit about some of your hunts. What's the season been like? Good weather, lots of birds, having fun? It's been good this year. Um, I waited till after my crap team was done, and then the 1st of November I went out with, with my oldest son and a friend from St. Louis County, and we did CRP and, and had three dogs. Each had a dog, and uh, the birds are there, especially if there's corn or grain around, and the harvesting's going on right now. Okay. So the birds would be displaced from the corn into the cover, and so that's the type of uh, areas we look for where CRP was around those or private land that we have permission to hunt. And we did we did really well with, with dogs. I don't know if you do very well without dogs because pheasants will just sit and let you walk right by them, and you wouldn't even know they were in the field. The topic of drought was it was a huge topic over the summer, and I'm just kind of curious, you know, with your connections back to the farming community and everything, and obviously being a bird hunter, how did that, you know, what was the conversation, and then were there any impacts that you saw when you arrived there and started hunting this fall? Early on, talking to friends out there that I grew up with in school that have private property, they talked about how dry it was. Mm -hmm. And they even had the chance to knock down areas uh, with cattails that would, the fields were dry. Right. But right around the 1st of August, they started getting a lot of rain. And all those areas that they knocked down uh, now were covered in water. So there is quite a bit of water out there now. Okay. Where there wasn't back most of June and July and when they really needed the rain, they didn't get it. Right, right. Yeah, did that Did that seem to have any impact on the grasses and the cover that you were looking for? Were you, because I know there was, there was, there tended to be a lot more grazing and hay going on this year too, especially during the, you know, the heat of the drought. In the areas that I've been hunting, I haven't noticed that the drought affected it at all. Okay. Where are you at with, I mean, it's November 16th, we're, we're chatting today. The South Dakota pheasant season runs through the end of January now. Um, I almost had a chance to, I, w- I went on a South Dakota pheasant hunt last year. I was hoping to get out one more time in January because the weather was so darn nice. Will you keep hunting for quite a while now, Bob? Well, last year I went out to in January and it was, the weather The weather was nicer in January than it was in October. Right, yeah, yep. Yeah, so as long as the weather permits, I'll, I'll go out and you know, you have to buy a license after every 10 days of your your hunting and break them up into two five-day periods. And then after that expires, you'd have to buy another one, which the state will allow you to do out in South Dakota. So I'll probably have two, maybe even three licenses by the end of January. Okay. So that is the case. There isn't a, as a non-resident, you can't buy a full season small game license over there? No, you buy them. Uh, 10 days, 
and you can split them up into two five days. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think I I noticed that when I was when I was heading there last year, I only was going to be there for four days, so I just kind of you know I saw that I was covered and I just left it. But I was I was really wondering if there wasn't. Uh, some kind of a full season option because I was thinking about going back and I guess I would have been okay with my single 10-day period to split up into five-day chunks. But yeah, it's good to know. Well, well, the trick the trick to that is when you pick your first five days and you don't know when your next second mm-hmm. five days is, pick the last five days of the season. You can always move them up. Okay. But once you go buy them, they're used. Okay, yeah, that's good to know as well because I I know I've run into that with I I usually make an early season trip out to North Dakota and you with that you get two seven days and I'm always I'm always eager to maybe get back there and I have I haven't yet so it hasn't been an issue but yeah so set them to the last and and we're talking South Dakota obviously that's what you know but set them for the last five days of the season and you can always drop in there and move them up if you go again. Correct. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about pheasant hunting just because you've obviously spent a lot of time out there over the years. And, like, right now when you go out there, you have you – have, we talked yesterday. You've got connections. You've got private land that you can go hunt. But let's talk in a general sense, and this could involve private and public land, but, like, what is your approach and process to going and finding places to hunt? Are you – you just kind of know the area well enough to know where the cover is and you spend a little time driving around looking for the right stuff. Do you do any online mapping or looking at satellite imagery before? What's your process for finding a place to go hunt, Bob? Well, I haven't had to use the the satellite imaging, but I have, like you said earlier, I have connections out there and I talk to the, my friends out there. And in fact, they're calling me and asking me when I'm coming out and, yep they've got guys lined up to hunt with us and they have dogs and stuff like that. So we can, it's kind of a coordinated interest, but as if you go out there a couple of times, and this is true in the area that I hunt, but I think it's true in most of South Dakota, you make connections with uh, the small time, not small time, small town people. And they're really hospitable and they'll, they'll invite you out to their farm if they have birds and, so it's not hard to make connections out there, but there is a lot of public hunting grounds. There is a state atlas that shows you all the areas in South Dakota where you can hunt the grounds. And if I was to go out there and my advice to people is they've never been out there before, get the atlas, the state will send it to you, or when you buy your license out there, they'll have them where you buy your license. And they'll also have a book for regulations. But that atlas will show you areas where you can hunt. And if you find an area and you see corn's been around it or some type of grain and there's a little water and it's got cover, it's probably holding birds. So the key then is to have a dog to get the birds up. Yeah. So that at, that atlas is something that's put out like by the game and fish? Yes. Okay. And I imagine, I, I would think that South Dakota's similar to again i'm trying to recall from my trip out there i i hunted mostly private land but we did hunt some public land but i do they have like the the private land open to public hunting like the plots in north dakota or you hear it called walk-in elsewhere do they, does south dakota have that south dakota has walk-ins okay um they have the crip program there's uh what they call 
school property too mm-hmm. that people yep. can hunt on. Yep. They have waterfall protection area too that yep. you can hunt on, but then you have to make sure you don't have any lead on you. You only can have steel. Correct, non-lead shot. Yep. Right. So what I do is to, to not run into that issue is I'll shoot steel uh, most of the time. Okay. And this time of year, I'd probably use number four. Uh, later on in the season, I may switch to no- number two steel, only because they're pretty jitterish and probably get up further than you want them to get up away from you. But you should be able to bring them down with number twos. Yeah. So you sh- are you shooting a primarily a 12-gauge then, Bob? Yes. Okay. But, yeah, you've you've been able to make the switch to shooting mostly steel just to kind of get you on and off those WPAs and not having to worry about it. And sounds like four and two shot. Correct. All right. So when it comes to a Fez, I, I keep looking at this picture you sent me and I'm, I'm seeing like, I'm seeing there's three guys and there's three dogs and some birds here and you got a nice fence row behind you with grass in there. And I can see some egg in the background. Talk to me about, it doesn't have to be the perfect hunting spot, but talk to me about kind of an ideal pheasant hunt, like a piece of cover and an objective, whether it's a fence row or what, talk to me about like an ideal hunt that you'd go on. Well, cover and corn, uh, sunflower seeds in okay. the area, small grains, water, and that the fact that they've had habitat around those areas that gave them the chance to have the population of birds. If, if all you see is fence line to fence line of grain and corn and sunflower seeds and no nesting area, there's probably not any birds in the area. No cover. Yes. Okay. What you're, what I'm hearing there is it's very common. It comes up all the time when we're talking upland game birds, and that's for a very specific reason. But you're, you're really talking about habitat diversity, various types of grain and food sources, water, cover, all the things that a game bird needs in a close proximity area, that's a place where you can go and hopefully put up some numbers of birds. That's a that's a very common common theme in upland hunting, and I think that's probably the important thing for folks to take away. But I'm just kind of curious, you know, through your eyes, what are those components of diversity? And you mentioned corn, sunflower seeds, water, and then that grassy cover. Anything else that you might see and and target looking for pheasants out there? One of the things that uh, pheasants commonly, they they don't travel very far from where they're born, mm-hmm. within a couple of miles. And their life expectancy is only, even if they're not hunted, two to three years. So if you see the birds in, in July in a certain area, um, they're, they're going to be within that couple mile radius in October, November, when you start hunting them. So if you, if you do a little... You know, if you're, you have some connection in South Dakota and they, they're seeing birds in their area in July and August, they're probably still going to be there September, October, November, and December unless they're hunted pretty uh, thoroughly. But they're, they're a smart bird, and they're, they are hard to bring down. You have to be right on them. Yeah. Yeah, so that roadside observation, if you're lucky enough to be able to do some preseason scouting or, like you said, if you have folks out there, you know, they – I mean, those, those, I know those states tend to do roadside counts for a reason because they, they do give you some kind of an indicator as far as how the birds are doing. Do you get out there at all in the summer and cruise around, Bob? Um, not very often. I do sometimes. I, 
pretty busy with my high school shooting sports. Sure. Uh, Year-round now, we pretty, we shoot in the winter league, we shoot in the summer league, and so I keep I keep busy coaching, and when I can, I get out there. Yeah. What about going back to the the pheasant hunting a little bit? Just because I you haven't listened to the show, but I tend to be as I as our conversation went yesterday. I, I hunt rough grouse a lot, and I talk about that a lot on this podcast. So I don't want to miss an opportunity to talk to somebody that spends a lot of time hunting pheasants because I know I've got listeners all over the place and. I want to talk a little bit about the wind when you're working a piece of cover with your dogs and you've got, you've got labs, flushing dogs, whether or not that matters, how do you take into consideration the wind and do you like to do anything in particular based on the wind direction when you're working a piece of cover? With the wind, we like to work into the wind. I know when it's, when we were there just the other day, we had winds up to 60 miles an hour and sleep and rain coming down our last three hours of hunting on Saturday. But even though it was miserable within a short period of time, we had five birds with the, out of four of us hunting. Yeah. Actually it was three of us that were actually hunting it. So the wind makes a big difference. They, they can't smell us, the humans coming when you're going into the wind, but the dogs can smell the birds when they're coming into the wind. Yeah. There's some, Times where you, you can't do that. Right. You're, you're hunting with the wind. But you kind of come up with a game plan uh, before you get out there and you don't want to slam your doors from your vehicles. You want to be quiet. Yeah. And you try to work work it into the wind. And then you might have to come back with the wind. And we, we did a 360 around this area. And every time we were uh, into the wind, we got closer to the birds. They didn't get up as far away. When we were with the wind, they got up further. But we did very well both directions. Yeah. Because the weather was kind of nasty, and they, they're kind of like us. They don't like to get out in the, in the rain and the sleet either. Sure. Um, so they might hold tighter in windy, nasty weather. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Yeah, they can't, they can't hear as much, and yeah, they, they might have more of a tendency to hold until, like you said, either a dog or a person is right on top of them. Right. And then another trick to do, too, is don't always walk in a straight line. Zigzag in the field um, or the cattails, and every once in a while, stop. Yep. That makes the birds nervous. Mm-hmm. So when you stop, and they don't hear you coming anymore, they think you know, they, I think they think you know where they are. 
then they decide they decide to get out of dodge and that's when they get up and if you have to do that periodically i think that helps uh, locate more birds what about pace because another thing you've mentioned and i've i've experienced is this you know a pheasant in particular they will at, from time to time they will hold tight i mean they will bury themselves down and you could walk right by them and they might not move but getting towards your comment about stopping and slowing down you know if you walk slow enough you might put that bird on edge enough to get up how do you handle pace how do you like to walk a cover well just like i said just you know walk walk it slowly and um depending on how many people you have you kind of decide right how much of that those cattails you're going to take is it worth it going into the the wet cattails or you let the dogs go in there if they track a bird in there and you just stay on the outside. Kind of play it by ear, especially now when it's it's still wet and it's not frozen. And then the zigzagging, stopping periodically, taking it slow. Um, let the dogs have a chance to pick up the scent. Mm-hmm. And uh, Or if you see some birds go down when you mark it in the area. And then when you get to that area, make sure the dogs work that area really good. And don't try to rush it. I think that's the biggest mistake people make is they rush through a field too fast. And then even though they've seen birds go in, mm-hmm. they never get them up. Yeah. That's because they go through too fast. Do you, it, it sounds like, you know, just from talking to you for yesterday and today a little bit, it sounds like you tend to be hunting in sort of smaller groups. Do you do any, any of the posting and blocking or anything like that? Or are you, you usually just kind of walking along with some others? We've had groups in the 20s. Uh, we, we hunted on Friday with a group of 14. Okay. And, and we had people posting and, and uh, hey, we had a few more dogs. and So we, we do do that from time to time. Um, it's important that you know who you're hunting with. Yeah. And you know, you know the firearm safety that they uh, have the same feel for that you do. And so I tend not to hunt with large groups. Unless I I know everybody in that group or have hunted with that those particular people in the past, and uh, I think most of your listeners probably understand exactly what I'm saying. And we haven't had any incidents, but it just one of those things where I teach firearm safety and we're very conscious of knowing who's in the group and following the firearm safety rules and and so on. So we. I just got a call last night from one of my friends out there who lives in Aberdeen, and he's got a, a group he's putting together, and he want to know how many, as he refers to it, guns that I have coming out mm-hmm. in the next. So we'll plan stuff like that. Um, I think he said he had eight already, and we'll have five, so we're already reaching 13. So be similar to last Friday when we when we were out, but it's people i know and it it will work out yeah yeah no that's a that's a it's a good point we've i've talked about that a little bit before on some interviews on the show and obviously you can never be never be too careful you start lining people up and facing towards each other with guns you know you're looking for high birds and extreme extreme caution and safety first so that's a a good point i was just kind of curious if you if you had done any of that but it sounds like sounds like you do sometimes one other thing, at least that I can think of now, and I want to kind of use this to segue into the next part of our conversation, but let's go Bob's top tips, or if somebody's, you know, if somebody's 
going on a pheasant hunt for the first time, I want to talk about that moment when that big rooster gets up in front of you. What are you going to tell that person in, in trying to coach them through making a good shot? Take your time. Don't quick shoot it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if it gets up really close to you. Take your time. And if you're shooting it over and under or a semi-automatic, you, you still have that backup rounder tool. Yep. And if you take your time, you're probably going to drop it with the first round. If you rush your shot, probably going to miss. So when I get out and practice beforehand, um, one of the, one of the uh, sports that you shoot in sports you can do is sporting clays. It simulates hunting scenarios. So get out and, and practice before you hit the field. That, that would be my recommendation. Yeah, awesome. I, I know when on the rare occasion that I do hunt the open country, which I've, I've, I've done more of over the past few years and I really, really enjoy it. But the biggest mistake that I make is shooting too fast. And I know a lot of it's the roughed grouse hunter in me, but it's, it seems like it would be so easy just to convince yourself, you know, I've got a wide open look at this bird. There's no need to rush, but it just, I, I don't know. I haven't been able to, haven't been able to get over that quite yet. And I do all right shooting out there. You know, I've, I have a lot of confidence and you do get those open looks, which lends itself to better shooting. But there are, there are times every year when I've got two empty barrels and that bird is still plenty within range. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can recall an incident just recently where the bird got up and it just took a split second longer, but had I not had a shot right away, I know I would have missed him because as I was sighting him in, he went to the right and then real quickly went to the left. Mm. And I'm sure I would have, I would have shot to the right of him had sure. I shot right away. But because I, I held up, he was right there in my sights. He, he actually came right back into my sights and be patient. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, you know, pheasants, big rooster is a big bird and they can be they can be tough to bring down so you want to make a you want to make a good shot on them and if if you're fortunate you know you're going to have some time if it gets up close you're going to have some time and you should have an open look to be able to take that time to make a good shot i agree all right bob so let's let's transition a little bit into the on the thread of wing shooting and coaching a bit you are a High school trap shooting coach would that be the right way to describe it? I think you're 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 much more than that, Bob. But I just want to narrow the focus a little bit. Yeah, so I'm a head coach for the Richfield High School Academy of Holy Angels, located in Richfield, and I also coach Eastview trap team out of Apple Valley. Okay, so because I haven't done an interview, you know, I've I've been aware of this. I think I mentioned it earlier the the popularity of the high school shooting sports beyond Minnesota has been growing like crazy, but I know it's been growing very fast here. We've got the Minnesota state tournament, which I'm sure you could talk about as a huge event. Um, it's, I think it's one of, if not the largest shooting event in the world. I I've read something like that. Um, I know you wrote an article about it too. Um, that I think it was in time, Bob, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but just as much as you can, can you talk to me a little bit about sort of like the past five to 10 years, sort of the origin and, and really the snowball effect that this arena and event and youth shooting has, has experienced? Okay. Well, the founder for uh, trap shooting for high school was Jim Sable. 
in 2001. 2001. Okay, so 20 years ago. Right. And then uh, became the fastest growing high school sport in Minnesota back then. And it still is the highest, fastest growing sport in Minnesota and now the nation. The uh, I think the only sport now in Minnesota that has larger participation is football. Wow. In 2020 to 2021, there's 36,690 participants. And uh, in that, there's 1,310 teams out of 34 states now that have high school trap shooting. And what is... Oh, sorry, go ahead. And it has grown uh, quite a bit over the years. And it it, uh, will take sixth graders all the way to 12th graders. Okay, that's what I was wondering. on, On these teams. That's a that's a long time that somebody can participate in this shooting sport, which again, really cool. And as I mentioned to you yesterday, and I, there's been a lot of conversations about this, you know, having all of these kids get introduced to shooting sports at a young age, being taught the right way, gun safety, they're developing the skill and proficiency, and what might they go on to do, you know, perhaps enjoy upland hunting later on in life, all that stuff, just to have that kind of a of a structured program to get all these kids trained and, and proficient in the shooting sports. It's just really cool. Well, I just recently had one of my athletes, Sidney Krieger, this fall over in Peru, help the USA team win gold. Wow. And they had to shoot, they shot against uh, Italy in, in winning gold. And Sidney was the top shooter for the USA team. I've had other athletes that have gone on uh, over in Wisconsin and Minnesota and shooting sporting plays and being one of the top performers around. So it, it there's opportunities of other uh, athletes that got on to college with scholarships for trap. So there is there is an opening now. More more and more colleges are starting to have trap teams. It used to be just the Voltex that would have a trap team, mm-hmm. but now it's now it's taken hold in colleges and there's more and more colleges starting to have trap teams. That's interesting. Yeah. That's gotta be, that's gotta be super fun for you as a coach. Yeah. It's fun to see them excel from the time they first uh, start shooting until they leave. And then you hear about their successes afterwards and their, you know, when their other endeavors like college and uh, Olympic type shooting. What led you into being a coach, Bob, how did talk to me about how you kind of entered the world? We got a little history on the trap shooting and 20 years ago. At what point did you dip your toe in the water? Oh, I I guess I kind of fell into volunteering coaching when uh, back when I was on the farm. I played baseball during the summer. My grandfather was busy, and so the neighbor at a bane uh, would take me or see that I had a ride to go to practices and games and even late at night, uh, her son Barney and his girlfriend then Sharon and now his wife would come and pick me up. And so that kind of led the way to me volunteering when, when I had the opportunity, which I started back in 72 when I volunteered coach for uh, track and cross country at the school I went to and then um, continued volunteering for baseball and traveling baseball and basketball and things like that with with my uh, children. And then when my youngest daughter was going to Eastview, there was an email that went out to the parents that they were starting a trap team. So 
I got a hold of her right away and asked her if she wanted to do it. Of course, she was already coming out hunting with me and stuff to South Dakota, and I knew she'd jump on it, and she did. And so that was in 2013 when I started coaching Eastview, and I then started the Richfoot Holy Angels trap team in 2013. Okay. And I've continued to coach Eastview since then, but my Richfoot Holy Angels team, uh, as the play target league started introducing more disciplines, we started doing more than just trap. So we do all four that they offer, which is five stand, skeet, sporting clays, and trap. Interesting. So they are so they, they have included started to include those other disciplines in shooting sports now. Yes. Okay. In fact, this last spring in Minnesota alone there were three hundred and twenty four high schools that had teams. Wow. Yeah, in 2021. Are the the sporting clays one, I think is, you know, that's always of interest, you know, as an upland bird hunter, and you, you mentioned it earlier, that being a great form of practice for an upland bird hunter. Is that, just given the fact that you're not just doing it all in the same place, you're typically walking around a course, has that, has that proved to be challenging as far as logistics and, and getting the kids through the courses, or is it working out okay? The kids are just fine. It's the coaches that... <laughs> We, we, uh, our coaches have, have some issues that were a little bit older than the kids are, but we don't have any problem walking if we had to, but we do have a, a golf cart that one of, golf cart, one of our, uh, motorized one that I gotcha. one of our coaches has. So we'll ride that and the kids will ride that if, and put their shotguns on it and their ammo on that. Yep. Uh, horse and hunt in Prior Lake is mm-hmm. one of the places we shoot. Uh, the other one is South St. Paul. We shoot there in Sporting Clays. Uh, we do five stand at a couple locations, which is Minneapolis Gun Club in Prior Lake or West End Trap Club in, in Egan. And we do trap at, at the West End Trap Club, and we do trap at Minneapolis Gun Club also. And with skeet, we've done that uh, mainly at Minneapolis Gun Club, but there is a skeet field at uh, South St. Paul. So. Do you see, with, with Trap obviously being the the main event, so to speak, do you see any of these other disciplines like a skeet or a sporting clays? Do you see them becoming, you know, extremely popular, maybe not on the same level as Trap, but are there any early indications that other, some of, like either of those disciplines could really grow and explode like this? I would think the sporting clays, again, maybe it's just me, the upland bird hunter, but... It seems to have so much appeal to me, like going and shooting different courses, just like, you know, it's the golf of shooting, really, where you've got a little bit something different every place you go. I think sporting clays is going to take off. It's, I think, the second most discipline that's being participated. Yeah. And then and then skeet is pretty close to that, or, or one way or the other, they're, they're second or third. Five stand, they just introduced here not too long ago. And five stand, you don't have to walk from field to field mm-hmm. to get to the next so i think that's going to take off too time will tell yeah but sporting clays and skeet i think are going to be around and keep growing like trap has grown over the years okay cool yeah i, I really like i like five stand i've the last couple of years i shoot five stand usually in the early spring when things are just starting to warm up our club up here does that and I like that because, again, yeah, you can do it in a from a single location, but the presentations and stuff can really be changed and varied a lot. So I, 
I find a lot of enjoyment shooting five stand. Yep. All right. I want to talk a little bit about what are you seeing from your athletes that you're getting, and maybe you talk a little bit about some of the younger athletes starting around that sixth grade mark, and then maybe people that join up later. Are you, are you having to? Do they show up having not even been through firearm safety? So is that step one, or do they? Is that a requirement? How are you getting these kids and athletes started in the shooting sports, Bob? Advertising through school um, and word of mouth, and my coaches and I do put on a firearm safety course during the winter months prior to spring at West End Trap Club. I've been an inst- firearm safety instructor since 1995 and coordinating it since 1996, first at the Richville Police Department when I worked there. And then when I started coaching, it then went to West End Trap Club. And we try to get as many kids as we can. COVID kind of knocked down the numbers that we could have in a classroom. But I think this this winter we'll we'll have more attendance that uh, DNR will let us allow a larger class than we've had in, during the COVID period. Okay. You know, mentioning the DNR there, it kind of uh, it raised an interesting point. And being that we're talking about shooting sports and using firearms, are there complications? Or I mean, it sounds like, I know, like, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that there have been very few, if any, incidents in the Minnesota trap shooting league. And obviously it's a huge, you know, safety first is a huge component of all this, but it's kind of, it's kind of amazing that you could have all of these people in this program and have such an incident free track record. Can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, are there, are there authorities involved? How does it all work, Bob? Well, when the league first started out, we had in-person meetings, direction and training now it's uh, it's online. It's very detailed. Okay. But the number one thing is firearm safety. Yeah. And there's, as you can imagine, we're all volunteers. There's a lot of volunteers that make this work. When you have 324 teams in in Minnesota alone, you need quite a few volunteers. Yeah. And without the volunteers, it would not be successful. And with that comes a lot of responsibility of. Mm-hmm making these kids know what, you know, they can't be flashing the muzzle towards anybody else and they have to use a two-hand carry and it has to be empty, can't have it on school property, the the firearm or ammo. Yep. There has not been one incident in the Minnesota, and I don't think in the nation, that hosts a team. Um, you can go on the USA Clay Target League website, and I think they'll, they have that mentioned on their information that there's not been one injury reported. So it is the safest sport in high school. You don't have concussions. You don't have broken bones. Yeah, isn't that um, something? It, there's been no deaths because of concussions. So you look at all these other sports that have injuries, and then you look at the record of uh, trap, sporting clays, skeet, and five stand in Minnesota, high school sports, and there's been – no injuries. Yeah. But it's the perception of people that feel that firearms are dangerous, but they're only dangerous if it's untrained person. Right. Yeah. You know, we're, we're preaching to the choir a little bit with the audience of this podcast, but again, I haven't had this conversation before and I just, you know, even just talking about it, it's, it's kind of amazing that you could have 
something like this exist and have it be such a success and so, you know, such a good track record as far as teaching these, these kids firearm safety, shooting sports, and, and really just kind of, you know, teaching them this, this skill that again, sounds like there's more and more outlets and there's always, there's always upland bird hunting, which I think many people are hoping that a lot of these athletes and, and students find their way into at some point if they, if they so choose. One of the other neat things that I think makes it all work, and I just would have have you talk about this a little bit, is that you don't have to go travel to go to events. Most of the shooting is sort of done on your home course, and then the scores are posted and done online. Is that correct, Bob? That's correct. That's what makes it uh, keeps the cost down. Yes. With ammo being about three times more than it used to be, mm-hmm. and you know fees have gone up at the clubs also to offset that. If we had to travel, I think there'd be less competitions than what we have now. Yeah. But it's it's an honor system, and coaches submit the scores on a weekly basis uh, to the league. And then based on the team size, it depends on what conference you're in. So last spring there was 42 conferences, I believe, based on the size of the teams. Wow. Yeah, that's. I I always just know that that was one of the cool things about this league. And, And it's what also allows so many people to participate, I think, too, because as you mentioned, you know, the cost can be a prohibitive factor, but just the time and the availability and, you know, being able to do this at home or on your home course, at least, is, has helped it, has helped it grow, I think. It's even with the price of ammo these days, I'm sure it's still cheaper than putting a kid through hockey. Bob. <laughs> well, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we never know. We'll have to see if we can. Right, how, right. how about the, I did want to ask you about that because that was a conversation around the club when I was shooting this summer was what are the kids going to do with the ammo shortage and supply chain issues? Were your teams able to keep uh, keep full of shells? There are teams that did not participate because of ammo issues. Wow, that's un- that's really unfortunate. Yeah. And, and our numbers have gone down, for example, we we used to have 40 on our team. COVID knocked it down somewhat, but the, the cost of being on the team has gone up dramatically, and I'm, that's also bringing the numbers down. Mm. So we, we were down to 19, which is about half of what we used to have. And with the ammo prices still up there and the cost of being on a team, I, I don't see our numbers going up much, maybe into the low 20s. We, we, do, we did start a sponsorship program for our team here, so we're hoping that that will kind of help offset some of the cost yeah. for, our, for our members on the team and, and keep the cost down. Is that cost of being on the team, is that just related to, is that time on the shooting range or just any number of it's, factors? Uh, per trap, we will find ammo. Okay. And and with that, we'll purchase the ammo as a team, purchase the time on the range, and then that's all calculated by our accountant as to what the fee is going to be for this coming spring. We're still in the process of figuring that out. But just this last fall, uh, because of the cost of ammo, right, 
our athletes were paying $350 just for travel. In the other disciplines, they have to furnish their own ammo and pay for their own time on the range. Yeah, so the cost of ammo being built in on the trap side of things, that that could be a significant increase there. And yeah, and and at the end of the day, you everybody's got to pay for their time on the range, the clay targets and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's that's where the cost would be coming from. Right. And it's more it's more the ammo than sure. than the range time. Sure. Yeah. I would imagine most shooting clubs are are happy to have the kids out and would be doing whatever they can to sort of facilitate right. you know make it as easy as possible those prices are usually lower than the adult prices yeah. for, you know when they purchase they have an adult price for ammo and they have the the youth price for ammo and that's true at most of the ranges that we go to from a coaching perspective we, and we won't spend all day on this but i just am curious and maybe you could sort of talk about again like somebody that is coming in as a sixth seventh or eighth grader what kinds of things are you working with on them versus maybe an 11th or 12th grader? You know, what are you working on with, with those athletes? Talk to me about, like, what are you coaching these students on when it comes to, and we can stick to trap shooting just for the sake of the conversation. I, I like athletes that have never held a shotgun ever in their life. Okay. have had great success with that because there's no bad habits mm-hmm. that come onto the field that you have to break. Uh, in order to be successful with trap, we have sixth graders, a couple in the, in the past couple of years that ended up by the time they're seventh grade as our top gun. Wow. On the team and done very well in the conference. And our females, I think, have been more top guns than our males. The uh, top gun this year was a seventh grade female. On your On your team? On our team. That's that's cool. Yeah, and she was in the top ten in the conference for females. Right offhand, I can't remember. She was number two for females in our conference, and she's only a seventh grader. Wow, that's cool. That's not the first time we've had a sixth grader come on our team, never had any experience, but by the time they're in seventh grade, be the top gun. Wow. There's a lot of things that come into play there. Her family and her older brother practiced a lot. Her older brother, when he was the sixth grade, started out in the seventh grade, was top gun. So what I teach them is the basics. Mm-hmm. And then every person is different. And as you watch them progress, you tweak it. It works best for them. Sure. But the best thing I can tell anybody out there listening, if you want to learn how to shoot trap, there's more than one way, but go to YouTube, look up Gil Ash. Mm, yep. And Gil Ash has some good videos, especially for starting out with trap. You can critique it to, you know, what you think works better for you, but those basics that he puts out there will work for just about anybody. Excellent. Yeah, that's very cool. I, I will say that I've seen some of Gil Ash's videos, and I would say that's, that's probably, I imagine you hear this a lot, but for the kids and anybody interesting in shooting it. YouTube is a really, I mean, there's lots of stuff on there and like anything else, there's good and there's bad, but the shooting sports have some very, there's some very good channels related to shotgunning and shooting on YouTube. There's a lot of resource and information there, I think. So rather than getting detailed, you know, on this broadcast right now, Mm -hmm. 
because I could spend another hour talking about hold points and sure. where you want your eyes and what position you want your feet at each station, one through five. Uh, if you're left-handed, where you place your where your shotgun when you're at station three, and if you're right-handed, where you place your shotgun. There's a lot of details there, and if the kids learn that at an early age, they're better they're better for it than if they, um, for example, go out without any coaching to a range and start shooting, and don't really know the principles that make them a, a good shooter. Yeah. It doesn't hurt once you get those basics down to go out on your own. It always helps to have somebody there that knows trap shooting to be able to help critique it afterwards. And by the way, thank you for the Garmin because the Garmin is a tool that people can use to help them faster learn how to shoot trap. With the Garmin, it tells you how fast you shot per second, what the distance was, what the feet per second average of the shell was that you shot out of the first 25. Really? So it's it's seeing the pellets, too. And it will show you where you hit the clay if you broke it, whether it's a clean break, a chip, or a smash. It designates uh, numbers. And, for example, a smash might be five points. Okay. A chip, a chip one point, and a clean break, three points. And by the time you're done with all 25, it gives you a factor there up to 100%. But it, more importantly, that Garmin shows where they were shooting. Yeah. Most of the time, I can tell them when they're sh- where they shot, but you can't always tell if they have this. Sh- when you're looking for so many different angles, can't quite tell whether they had it up in their cheek, mm-hmm. the right position, and in the shoulder, in the right position. And just going by the wad going out there, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the direction that their shot went. Right. So it's a it's a very good tool to have to teach new people how to shoot. Yeah, I'm ha- I'm happy to hear that. And yeah, obviously, thank you to Garmin for providing us that Garmin Zero, and the listeners will know it. It went to a, a listener, and we donated it back. And Bob and his students and athletes have won it and they're going to be using it now for for the near future but i have talked about that before and how the shooting sports whether it's hunting or you know clay targets can be can lack feedback if you miss you know if, if you're just shooting by yourself and you miss a clay or you miss a bird sure you might have an idea but you don't have you don't you don't know for certain where you missed and proper and appropriate correct feedback is one of the most important things to any sort of feedback success loop. And so the fact that you got this tool, this Garmin Zero, that can give you, the coach, the exact feedback you need in order to help the student, then they can immediately put that in place on the next shot. And, and you can see those improvements in real time. I'd imagine it's just it's, it's kind of a game-changing tool for you as a coach. And what's neat about it, too, is if, the, if my athlete has a smartphone, they download the program, and they can get that put all those results go right on their smartphone and they can kind of look over it at their leisure how they did or they can keep it as a record as how well they did sure you know in their progression over the years yeah that's very cool and and i think like you said when when it comes to scoring and clay targets you know if you chip a bird that usually i don't know if they're changing that at all but to get that feedback as far as like hey i'm smashing these birds or i'm i'm close but i'm not all over them 
that that's like the important nuanced feedback and how you make those subtle improvements. Right. And the rule, the rule is that generally two BBs will break a clay. Okay. So that would probably be your chip. Yep. But you would, most, most kids get really excited when they, when there's this clean break or a smash yep. and, or it just explodes into powder. Um, you don't even see a piece left anymore. Just, yep powder out there that always feels good so and that's that's what i think uh the ultimate goal is our our athletes is to not only break them but break them in to where they're a smash or disintegrating yeah okay bob so a couple things here before we're going to wrap this up very quickly i just want to address a couple things number one if we've got people listening that have kids that are maybe coming up to the point where they might be at a point where they be thinking about joining shooting sports, you know, what, what would you tell the parents, anything to consider, anything they could do to, you know, make sure their, their kids are ready for this? There are a number of things. You need to have the right tools for any sport. Yeah. You know, you don't play baseball anymore with, with old gloves, um, for example, so you need the right shotgun for the right size person. It fits them. Um, if they're if they're starting out and they're only going to be in trap, I would invest in in a trap gun. Okay. Um, it's it's okay to use grandpa's old pump. Nothing wrong with that. But if you can afford a trap gun like a BT ninety nine, and it doesn't have to be the adjustable butt, adjustable comb, the micro, it could be just a straight BT ninety nine uh, that fits them. And, and they're not easy to find either because they are popular, because they are a good trap gun, especially for youth. Yeah. But if, but if you can find one at a, a price that works for you, I would sh- suggest getting that or something really similar. But you don't need an over and under for trap. The more weight that you have in a smaller person might make it difficult for them to swing on those hard right and hard left birds that they see. Yeah. So a single barrel that fits them and that they can uh, swing right or left with easily uh, would be my recommendation. Firearm safety course is a must, um, either through Department of Natural Resources. There are also uh, USA Clay Target League offers a version, but it's only good for the Clay Target League, does not allow you to hunt uh, Department of Natural Resources firearm safety course then does allow you to hunt and also to be part of the USA Clay Target League. With that, then get some instruction from coaches, and if they're NRA certified, that's even great. But someone who knows your grandparents uh, may have a relative or a friend or themselves that have shot trap in the past or even hunted in the past. Because they're going to be firearm safety. You can't have fun if you don't if you're not being safe out there. Yeah. So as long as they have the firearm safety and they have someone responsible with them to go out and practice at a trap field near them, with the proper tools, the proper eyeglasses, different type of colored glasses makes mm-hmm. a difference in shooting on cloudy days, clear days, you name it. They're out there. Yeah. Uh, Beretta and Browning put out good shooting glasses. And you get those online. Earplugs. Hearing protection is very important. Yep. Um, especially when they're f- first starting out. And 
There's headsets. Headsets sometimes get in the way. Yeah. The shooter's shotgun butt. But you can get headsets that work. But uh, there's a lot of good product out there that completely blocks out the shotgun sound when the shotgun goes off. But then when a shotgun's not going off, they can hear the instruction right. of the trap tender or the coach. So I would invest in those. And then the clothing, you, you dress according to the weather, but do not wear sandals. You know, wear, wear some decent shoes. Yeah. Don't rest the, the shotgun on your toe. You see people doing that. Older people will do that. There are the shotgun pads that you can uh, purchase or even make. You can Google that online. So those are just a few of the things. You need a, you need a shell pouch. And then if you can get a, a case where you can put your empty casings into that, not litter it on the ground. You don't, you don't have to have that, but it, it's just a nice way of learning to respect property. So when you go out hunting, you're not leaving those empty shell cases out in the field. So you're getting the practice of putting them in your, your case, your empty case again. So those are a few tips. Awesome. Good stuff and good information, Bob. I appreciate it. I'm just, uh, I'm a little distracted because I'm glancing out the window and there's a big eight point buck just outside my office here <laughs> i don't know if you're a deer hunter bob but i always get excited when i see the big bucks this time of year yeah yeah well they won't be long and they'll be south dakota starts there's um I, that's right about now isn't it third, third, i think it's thanksgiving weekend maybe it's the week before I, okay but we saw we saw tons of bucks out there hunting did you pheasants. yeah and big ones yeah well, excellent. Two more things here. One, because we do have, we've got a lot of Minnesota listeners and you mentioned your teams have, you've got a sponsorship program open. Um, and then also sort of related to this, you mentioned to me yesterday that you're, you're starting to do in, you know, when you've got some free time, you're doing a little bit of individual coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching. And I actually, I had a guy reach out to me last night, Bob, that he's from Minnesota and he was asking about shooting instruction. And I just kind of told him to stay tuned to the podcast, but if folks wanted to get in touch with you, maybe talk about your teams, maybe supporting the teams in any way and, or talk to you about shooting and coaching and that kind of thing. Could they, could they reach out to you? Sure. And what would be the best way to do that? And I can include this stuff in the show notes. You got an email and a phone number. Yes, you can give them my uh, email address and or phone number. Phone number is 612-850-1461, and they can text me. Um, just a little introduction. Yep. Okay, and then email address. I, uh, I've, I've got that from you, so I'll, I'll include that in the show notes. So if anybody's interested, they can they can check the information, and they can contact you, or I could put, put them in touch with you. But, yeah, sounds good, Bob. Um Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat with us about pheasant hunting and youth shooting. It's a couple couple topics that I was, you know, perfect timing this year and and I really have been wanting to cover the youth shooting topic for a while. So it was it worked out really awesome that this Garmin Zero went to you and a bunch of kids are going to benefit from it, it with having it in your possession and uh yeah, thanks for what you do in in coaching the students and athletes and helping out the youth shooting group. I really appreciate it, Bob. Well, thank you, Nick. I appreciate the Garmin.
We'll, <laughs> yes. we'll put it to good use. Yep, I'm sure you will. I have no doubt about that. Bob, I look forward to keeping in touch with you. And uh, if there's anything else you know, I could do for you with this podcast or you need anything at all, don't hesitate to reach out. You know, Maybe we could find an excuse to go walk a pheasant field someday. That'd be, that'd be fun. Yeah, I think that would be. We'll have to do that. Sounds good, Bob. Again, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Best of luck the rest of the way this fall and in the upcoming shooting season with your athletes. Have a great day, Bob. Thank you, Nick. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Quick reminder, we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, Uplander Lifestyle, and Dakota 283. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. Catch you on the next episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.